Today's episode is sponsored by H&E Publishing, a reformed evangelical and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. To see their full list of titles, visit their website at www.hesedandemet.com. On today's episode, we interview Dr. Doug Sweeney on uh, Jonathan Edwards. So I know Jonathan Edwards is a polarizing figure in a, a lot of different, I guess, aspects of the Reformed uh, uh, life. Uh, he seems to have fallen out of favor. So we asked Dr. Sweeney, is the, mis- or I guess mischaracterization, are the characterizations of Jonathan Edwards that are out there fair? Uh, is he unorthodox? Is he dangerous? Is he worth reading? Why, why does he matter? And then we talked to him especially about his life's work of preaching, of exegesis, and uh, his important and potentially innovative theological contributions. I think Edwards is one of the most fascinating figures in church history, and probably the most fascinating, at least in American uh, theological circles. So I think you're going to really be interested in the episode. Let us know your thoughts on what you think about Edwards, on uh, what you think about Dr. Sweeney's take on Edwards, and uh, we really think you're going to enjoy this episode. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we try to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly, uh, and those listeners include myself and Brandon. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today we are thrilled to have a guest with us, Dr. Doug Sweeney, Um, and we're really looking forward to talking to him about the topic of Jonathan Edwards. Um, before we get too much into Edwards and who he is, what he thinks, why he's important, um, Dr. Sweeney, why don't you take a few seconds to introduce uh, yourself to our listeners who maybe they're familiar with you, maybe they're not, um, and if, if they're not, why should they be? <laughs> well, I'm not so sure they should be, but I'm glad <laughs> to be with you. Uh, yeah, my name is Doug Sweeney. I'm the Dean and Professor of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School, which I've been serving since the summer of 2019. Before that, 22 years, was a church history professor, among other things, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the suburbs of Chicago. And um, interested in a lot of things as a researcher and writer in church history. But uh, Jonathan Edwards is certainly somebody that I've spent a lot of time with. In fact, my first job when I was done with graduate school was to work on the Jonathan Edwards Project at Yale. Spent a couple of years there, um, mainly transcribing Edwards' manuscripts and publishing the Yale edition of the works of Jonathan Edwards and teaching Edwards and putting on conferences. So he's somebody I really have enjoyed talking about for many years. Awesome. I imagine uh, the move from Chicago to where you're at now, uh, weather is a little bit better there. It's much better here. <laughs> uh, it's a little cloudy and rainy today, but generally speaking, it's nice and mild in the wintertime. That's awesome. I think I remember visiting schools when I was in high school and I visited Samford, um, which I guess that's the same campus, right? It is. Okay. And I remember thinking it was the most beautiful campus I visited. It is pretty. I'll give you personal testimony. We really enjoy it here. (laughs) Well, Dr. Sweeney, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I want to go ahead and to jump in on Jonathan Edwards because we want to make the best use of our time that we have with you. So with a figure so massive like Jonathan Edwards, it's hard to give a brief summary of who he is. But if you don't mind, um, could you just 
kind of give us a lay of the land about who Edwards is and a little bit about his um, background? Yeah, because some of our listeners, I guess, some of them are familiar with Edwards, but we do have some listeners who may have never heard of Jonathan Edwards, just to give you the context. Yeah, sure. That's no problem. Uh, Edwards was an 18th century pastor. He was born in 1703 and passed away in 1758. Uh, he lived his whole life in what became the Northeastern United States. Uh, he was a pastor in congregational churches, mostly uh, one Presbyterian church in New York City as well. The reason we know him today was he was um, an exceptionally brilliant theologian. So he lived his whole life as a pastor theologian, combining uh, congregational ministry with academic ministry as well. So the very beginning of his uh, career, he was a professor at Yale College, and at the very end of his career, he was the president of Princeton College. But in between, uh, he was a pastor, and he served churches in the midst of what we've come to call the Great Awakening, the revivals, transatlantic revivals of the 18th century. And that's another reason why we know him. He played an exceptionally important role as a theologian, a Christian thought leader in the midst of the tumult of the awakening, helping people make sense of its signs and wonders biblically and theologically. Awesome. So when it comes to Edwards, I guess I want to jump right into this question. It seems like I've seen a lot of people over the last few years um, almost recoiling against him. Um, especially those who are more, I guess, reformed in their theology, thinking that Edwards is not worth reading, he's unorthodox, he's dangerous, and he's overall just unuseful. Um, do you care to comment on why people are thinking that? Well, I mean, I don't know their motivations, but um, and that it, it's false to say uh, that what, what you just <laughs> said. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I'll offer a little bit of an explanation. Uh, Edwards was never employed as what we would call a systematic theologian. Again, he spent um, almost all his life as a pastor. He wrote a lot of books and published a lot of sermons, uh, but he did so as somebody whose job was week in and week out to open the Bible to parishioners. So he never took an opportunity or had an opportunity to tie everything up neatly uh, in the terms of the scholastic academic theologians in a systematic way. And uh, he wasn't always incredibly consistent. You know, he was what we call an occasional thinker. Uh, when he encountered problems or special issues that were uh, hot in his day, he would address them theologically, he'd address them biblically, and then he'd turn around three, four, six, seven years later and address a different hot issue biblically and theologically. Uh, and because he never tied it all together, uh, you know, there is a little bit of inconsistency from, from time to time and place to place in his theology. And that gives professional Edwards scholars a lot to fight about. You know, we, <laughs> we try to systematize Edwards for him and debate how best to do it. And some people resolve the tensions in Edwards theology in some pretty funky ways that make him sound pretty crazy but uh, I'm not among them. I don't think that's uh, very fair to Edwards. So this is a, a pretty straightforward question, but you know, some have questioned his, his orthodoxy on particular doctrines. So for example, I'm thinking of um, 
occasionalism and pantheism. Um, did he affirm those doctrines, or um, how would you assess his orthodoxy? Yeah, it's it's easier to answer the second question about pantheism quickly. It, the, the question about occasionalism takes longer, so maybe I'll start with pantheism. Uh, no, Edwards was not a pantheist. He did not affirm pantheism. If you called him a pantheist, he'd try to um, prove to you that he wasn't. But as a biblicist, you know, he is convinced that Christ is before all things, and by him all things consist, as Paul says to the Colossians, that there's one God and Father of all who's above all and through all and in you all, as Paul said to the Ephesians. He's convinced that in God we live and move and have our being, as Paul said uh, in Athens. And so he does have a view of God and God's presence in the world uh, that's pretty striking. Uh, he does think that if God stopped creating the world a few seconds from now, it would sink into oblivion. It would cease to exist. Uh, he, he thrived as a theologian at the heyday of the deist movement in England. And some of the deists were arguing for uh, what, William Paley called a clockmaker god, someone who designed the world as an expert mechanic so well that once he wound it up, he didn't need to intervene supernaturally in creation uh, after the beginning uh, of creation, and Edwards resisted that doctrine. Edwards was a robust supernaturalist evangelical Calvinist who thought that God does need to uphold creation and continue to create the world uh, every moment. Edwards also believed that God created laws of nature and God used secondary causes in and through which to run the world. But oftentimes he's emphasizing the world's dependence on God and resisting the God of nature and reason of the deists and proposing instead that we maintain a traditional view of God's supernatural relationship to the world. And sometimes he'll articulate that in a way that sounds unusual to people. And uh, some people have said, well, he must have been a pantheist then. But, um, you know, to say he's a pantheist is to make him into something that he would have been horrified uh, <laughs> to be associated with. The question about Edwards' occasionalism is harder to answer uh, quickly, and it's harder to answer perfectly, because Edwards does use occasionalist language a little bit. Uh, I don't know if your listeners know what occasionalism is. Should we talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, that, no, that's a good question. I, I was going to say, why don't we define that? Yeah, occasionalism is the teaching that what we have traditionally identified as secondary causes are really just the occasions in and through which God efficiently brings to pass everything that does come to be in the world. So occasionalism places a really strong emphasis on God's sovereignty and efficiency in relation to the world that he creates and sustains and tends to belittle the significance of things like laws of nature and the secondary causes that other kinds of theologians have argued traditionally God uses to run the world. And so there is this question, you know, Edwards is pretty worked up about deism. He's emphasizing things like um, the world's dependence from moment to moment on God. Uh, there's even a place in um, a book that he wrote at the very end of his life and never actually tied up perfectly himself before he died, but it got published anyway shortly after his death uh, on original sin. Mm -hmm. And in part four of his book on original sin, he talks about God creating the universe 
out of nothing in each new moment. Well, yeah. goodness, that sounds like an occasionalist statement. Uh, and I think, you know, even guys like me who are trying to de-exoticize uh, Edwards these days <laughs> and help people to see he thought of himself as a pretty traditional reform pastor, even guys like me have to admit, you know, that's a pretty striking statement. And it does remind people for good reason of occasionalism. But the thing I want to point out as soon as I admit that is that Edwards talked about laws of nature and secondary causes a lot more than he said things like that. Mm -hmm. And Edwards never said he was an occasionalist. And there is no documented evidence that he ever read any of the people who were champions of occasionalism. So my caution would just be not to take the infrequent statements that Edwards makes in his most anti-deistic moods uh, in the direction of occasionalism. Let, let, let's interpret Edwards whole and let's recognize that a guy like Edwards could uh, on one day resist deism with language like that and then turn around a couple of days later and reemphasize the importance of laws of nature and secondary causes. I, I, when I think about Edwards, you know, you said he has this small portion in original sin mm -hmm. um, where he seems to affirm potentially occasionalism. But as you mentioned, there are a bunch of other spots where he's affirming secondary causes. He's affirming things that no occasionalist could affirm. So it seems on the whole, if we take that all together, he's being inconsistent somewhere. And it seems that given that he's continually and more often affirming secondary causes, it's safer to say either that's a misstep there. Uh, he didn't realize he was being inconsistent or he just isn't an occasionalist. Yeah, I agree with all that, except um, the, the phrase about him affirming occasionalism. Ever, Edwards never in his life affirmed right. occasionalism. Oh, okay. okay. But he I did see. use occasionalist language, I, I grant. Okay. And not just in that one place, but there are a couple of miscellaneous entries in his private notebooks where he says things that sound similar to that. Okay, that, that's helpful. So I know me personally, when it came to Edwards, when I was first introduced to him, um, I found him fascinating and especially helpful with his sermons. I mean, I don't know if there's anyone else where you can find as many of his sermons online, because uh, it seems like all of these are available on Yale, and there's just hundreds, thousands of them. Uh, and I remember going through them and finding them so helpful for my own preaching. And it seems like, at least for me, my own preaching has been significantly influenced by his methodology of, of just preaching. So at the core of his preaching, though, is, of course, his exegesis. And I know you've done a lot of, of work and study on just his overall exegesis. So could you explain how maybe is he just traditionally doing like maybe grammatical historical exegesis? Is he doing a different type of exegesis? What is he doing when he is exegeting the scriptures? Yeah, well, what I try to say to folks who are used to more modern methods of biblical interpretation uh, about Edwards' exegesis is that what we take for granted today as grammatical historical exegesis isn't actually as traditional as the mm -hmm. kind of exegesis Edwards practiced. Now, I want to follow that up quickly by saying Edwards did a lot of work in the grammar of the text and the history behind the text. He did grammatical historical exegesis. But what strikes most late modern readers about someone like Edwards when they read his biblical interpretation is how theological it is, how spiritual it is. Mm -hmm. uh, Edwards was a both-and exegete. He spent a lot of time on Hebrew and Greek. Uh, when they invited him to be the president of Princeton at the end of his life, 
he was resisting a heavy teaching load, but he said to the trustees, I wouldn't mind teaching Hebrew because that would help me keep working on my Hebrew. You know, his whole life long, uh, he's working on the languages. He's working with some Aramaic. His Greek was really good. Um, he read all kinds of material on ancient Near Eastern history, Greco-Roman history. Um, he, he knew the history in the Bible. I'd put him up against any pastor you'd put on the other side of the debating hall today. I mean, his knowledge of biblical history was unparalleled. He had much of the Bible memorized uh, in English anyway. So he did all those things. At the same time, you know, he's an early modern, very traditional, uh, canonical, Christological, redemptive, historical, pedagogical sort of biblical interpreter and preacher as well. And so when people trained in the verse-by-verse -verse style that emerged uh, really mostly in the 20th century of, of working people through a pericope of Scripture in a sermon, and then they read Edwards, they say, well, wait a minute, you know, he's not doing it right. There's tons of exegesis in his sermons, uh, but because the Puritans taught each other to preach doctrinally, as they said. I don't know if your listeners want us to get into this too far, but doctrinal sermons of the Puritans are not the same thing as topical sermons that get talked about today. They're very exegetical, but their difference lies in the practice of the Puritans, whereby they'd start with some grammatical historical work on the pericope they were preaching, but then pretty quickly, at least by our standards today, they call from the text uh, of the day a doctrine or thesis that then they spend the next third at least of the sermon unpacking and propounding in a whole Bible canonical kind of way. Hmm. And then they get to the end of the sermon and the third part, which in uh, Edward's sermons on average was over 40% of the sermon, they apply not the history going on in the pericope they began with, but the doctrine that they've just been inculcating in a canonical, whole Bible, theological kind of way to the lives of the people who are listening to them. And that's the, that's the thing that would seem unusual to some of your listeners on the podcast about Edward Sermons. Hmm. I guess... Are there any contemporary similar examples of what Edwards and the Puritans are doing nowadays? Do you mean, are there preachers today who do it like that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've heard lots of sermons where people basically do something like that. It's just that it's not taught uh, in most of our seminaries anymore. So when they do it, they're doing it because they feel like their people need something like this from them in this instance. Uh, but they're not doing it in a way that was uh, laid out in the textbooks they used in the preaching classes that they took in school. You know, in Edward's day, there were lots of textbooks about preaching. We refer to them generally as the Puritan preaching manuals. And they all advocated this method of preaching. It's mm -hmm. a tripartite method of preaching that we refer to as text doctrine application preaching. And it's, it is exegetical. I mean, there's so much exegesis in the sermons of these folks, but they're all telling each other, make sure you let people know what the doctrine of the text is, and then you defend that doctrine with all of scripture. So, so it's made crystal clear and 
presented comprehensively to people from the pulpit and then apply the doctrine. So uh, another question about uh, his preaching, specifically his, his practice of preaching. Um, I, for years, I heard that Edwards would stand and like just read his sermon and there would be very little um, change in his voice, very little animation. And then I can't remember where I heard this recently, but it seems like maybe that was overblown and that wasn't exactly the case. Could you talk a little bit about his, uh, his preaching style? Yeah, sure. Uh, the thing that probably needs to be admitted first is that uh, for the first 20 years or so of Edwards' preaching ministry, he wrote complete manuscripts and he took them into the pulpit and he did do a lot of reading of his sermon manuscripts. Um, that's wonderful for church historians like me because it means that <laughs> when you go back in the late 1710s and 1720s and 1730s and ask yourself the question, what did Edwards preach about this text or on this occasion? You get a pretty good answer because he had complete manuscripts with him. And most of the time in those early sermon manuscripts, the only parts of the manuscript that are incomplete are the scripture quotations, which oftentimes um, Edwards is just doing from memory on the fly when he preaches because he knew scripture so well, he didn't have to write out uh, all of the scripture quotations in his sermons. But then uh, at the height of the Great Awakening, Edwards became a good friend of George Whitfield, who was, of course, uh, an itinerant preacher, didn't have a congregation of his own, but traveled around all the time, preaching in different places every day for many, many years. And so someone like Whitfield, of course, had no time to write manuscripts and take them into the pulpit. So he had to get good at preaching extemporaneously. And of course, he was very gifted as an orator. He's someone who, as a young man, even snuck into the theater to watch the ways in which actors command the attention of a crowd, you know, on stage. And he tried to make good on the learning that he got in the theater as a pulpiteer. Uh, and God used his gifts as a speaker and his willingness to preach in a more extemporaneous style very powerfully. And Edwards got to see Whitfield preach in that way to thousands of people at a time and, and became impressed with the way God could use that kind of preaching. So decided uh, after he got to know Whitfield that he should preach more like that. Hmm. So from about 1741 forward, Edwards is taking into the pulpit with him at first annotated outlines and later pretty sketchy outlines and towards the end of his life, very sketchy outlines. Uh, and that means for people like me, it's sort of a bummer because we can't always tell what he's preaching because we just see he's, you know, what his headings are, and he'll put a few words to cue his memory beneath each of the headings. But what it meant in Edward's view for the people who listened to him was it was more fun to listen to him, and it was easier to pay attention uh, to what he was saying. Edwards also mentored lots of young preachers who would live in his home and learn to be pastors under his care. And what he said to them was that, um, now that I look back on the history of my preaching ministry, I do think I admit it was a deficiency of mine to be so dependent on my manuscripts uh, as a young man. And he recommended that they preach in a more extemporaneous kind of way. I don't know. I don't know if this is the kind of commentary you want from me, but sometimes I think in our own day and age, so many preachers are so convinced that the only thing you can do is 
rouse a crowd with extemporaneous preaching that I, I imagine that if Edwards were here today, maybe he'd try to tell some young preachers to write some manuscripts and tr <laughs> quit, quit trying to be so freewheeling all the time. But uh, that's just me guessing. <laughs> that's awesome. Probably good advice. Yeah. So as I think of Edwards, um, I think pretty much everybody agrees, whether they, they like him or not, that he's, I guess, America's greatest theologian. Um, is does, What would you say is his most important theological contribution um, to the church at large? Well, I, I think it has to have something to do with his emphasis on the person of the Holy Spirit, and the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people who are converted and given new life in Christ and in the churches and communities in which they live. Edwards was a state church pastor, you know, even though he was in New England and not back in Old England. Uh, he spent his whole life as a state-supported, tax-supported minister of churches to which people were required to attend and give money. And he knew then that not everybody he was preaching to uh, was there out of a kind of deep felt love of God and passionate commitment about living the Christian life and being good disciples of Jesus. So he had a very strong emphasis over the course of his whole preaching ministry on, first of all, the difference between being a merely nominal cultural Christian on the one hand and being a serious Christian with a vital relationship with the Lord, on the other hand. But then, along with that, he also emphasized the difference between the kind of knowledge of God one can have without a significant uh, relationship with Christ by the Holy Spirit, on the one hand, and the kind of uh, experiential, existential, familiar knowledge of, acquaintance of, love of the Lord that people have, whose lives have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so he, he talks about this in a lot of different contexts in a lot of different ways, but if I had to say what's the one thing that Edwards did that makes the most significant contribution to the history of theology, the history of Christian thought, I'd say it's that strong emphasis he placed on the Holy Spirit and the difference he makes and the work that he does in our lives and I'd remind us that probably that became such a strong emphasis of his because he's an early evangelical who's worried about the problems of merely nominal cultural Christianity. So, uh, uh, Jordan, did you have something you're about to say? No, no, go okay. ahead. Yeah, so a similar question, and I don't maybe this would be uh, the same answer, but uh, did he have any innovative theological contributions that maybe we either should or should not? try to emulate ourselves? Well, yeah. I mean, he was um, an occasional theological writer and something of an apologist. Um, and so, yeah, he did innovate. He was somebody who was both traditional and interested in cultural relevance and contextualizing received theology in ways that met the needs of his own day. And he did that in a lot of ways. Uh, I think if I had to pick one that maybe was the, the innovative contribution he made that made the biggest difference in people's lives, it'd be the argument he made in his book on the freedom of the will. Edwards was a Calvinist, a, a pretty serious Calvinist, five-point Calvinist, who nonetheless 
wrote a whole book defending the notion that you can be a good Calvinist and affirm the freedom of the will. The book is it's mostly cast as a diatribe against what Edwards took to be Arminian understandings of free will. So it's kind of a anti-Arminian Calvinist book on free will. But at the same time, it's this really interesting, not completely novel, but you know, to the degree that it was made a really big difference in the lives of Reformed churches, it was pretty innovative in the way that it offered an argument for the freedom of the will from uh, Reformed Calvinistic theology. Hmm. So we've talked about Edwards' theology, we've talked about his preaching, and you mentioned a little bit about what you thought Edwards might say to pastors today about using notes more. Is there anything that you think Edwards would encourage local pastors today besides just, hey, you should take some time to write down your notes when you're preaching? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of things Edwards would want to say to pastors today. He spent his whole life thinking about being a faithful pastor and playing a significant role in raising up the next generation of faithful pastors in his region. You know, he lived and died before the rise of modern seminaries. So in Edwards' day, there were no seminaries like Beeson or you, you name the other kind of post-collegiate, post-baccalaureate seminary that you know and love. Those didn't exist in America before the 19th century. So what happened more often than not among thoughtful, ministry-minded college grads who finished college at a young age, oftentimes they were still teenagers when they finished college, felt a call to pastoral ministry but didn't quite feel ready to dive right in, they'd move into the homes of older pastors, seasoned veteran pastors. And these older pastors would give them more to read and discuss with them about scripture, theology, Christian doctrine, church life, and so on. But then would also let them start practicing pastoral ministry under their care. This is one of the significant roles that Edwards played in 18th century America, is mentoring a whole generation of younger pastors. And he had lots of things that he said to them and I think would say to us mm -hmm. today. I think probably the main thing, the first and foremost thing he'd wanna to say to pastors today is um, believe what the Bible says it is and does in our lives and in your ministry and act like you believe it uh, as you practice pastoral ministry. He would remind young pastors that God has asked you to be a minister of the word of God, most of all. And so don't let any other part of your ministry detract uh, from the amount of time you spend on, the creativity you pour into, uh, the value, the premium you place upon the ministry of the word. That should be at the center of your ministry. And I think if he were here, in, at least in 21st century America, he'd be pretty disappointed uh, that that kind of emphasis on scripture-driven ministry has uh, all too often gone by the wayside. I think he'd also uh, want to emphasize the importance of pastors serving as the key theological leaders of the people of God. Mm -hmm. I think he would uh, bemoan the fact that over the course of the last couple of hundred years, we've gotten ourselves in a situation where most people most of the time would assume that if you want serious theology, you should go to the academy rather than to your pastor uh, in your mm -hmm. church. 
I think Edwards would want us to remember that God wants pastors to be theologians, and he wants theologians to be ministry-minded and to do their work in a way that's geared for the salvation and sanctification and edification of the people of God. And I think he'd want to emphasize these things uh, among us because he also had what sometimes I call uh, an eschatological perspective on daily life and pastoral ministry. Edwards really did believe deep in his bones and acted like he believed deep in his bones that God is real. God is the most real thing there is. God should be at the center of your life because he's at the center of the world, the cosmos, and certainly at the center of your life, whether you realize it or not. Um, and so uh, people should live day by day and pastors should minister day by day as if that really were true. And as if uh, there would be a reckoning at some point where we go to be with the Lord on judgment day and give an account of our lives and of our ministries. Uh, Edwards preached a lot of ordination sermons over the course of his life for younger pastors. And one of the things that he would do with them that sometimes I have seminary students read today and it's a little scary sometimes to read it, is he'd remind them, you're gonna give an account uh, before the Lord for your ministry. He's watching you, he's here to help you. Uh, he gives you all the grace, gives you as much of his spirit as you possibly could, could ever need uh, to minister his word to the people in your care. So don't be a sluggard, don't be a slacker. Uh, be somebody in whose life and in whose ministry, God can do what he wants to do uh, through the ministry of the word. Well, you've uh, given us a lot to, to think about in regards to Edwards. So we're gonna, we're gonna let you go in just a moment. But before we do that, I, I wanna try to get a couple book recommendations from you. So maybe one book um, for the person who has never had any exposure to Jonathan Edwards, or maybe it's a sermon or, or something. Um, and then maybe a couple more advanced options for those um, who are familiar with Edwards, but something that they may find really interesting, either about him or by him. Well, the best biography of Edwards was published in 2003, the 300th anniversary of the birth of Edwards uh, by a man named George Marsden, who's kind of a senior uh, American religious historian. It's called Jonathan Edwards, A Life, it's published by Yale University Press. Uh, it's really long, so you got to be ready for it, but it's clear, and uh, you know anybody who likes to read uh, could read it and benefit from it, and it's nice and comprehensive. Uh, I did a book several years after that aimed at pastors and seminary people called Jonathan Edwards and the Ministry of the Word uh, that's shorter. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> bit easier to read, and it's, it's aimed more at people who uh, want to use Edwards as something of a model you know, for their own faith and their own practice of ministry. There's also, maybe if I'm gonna recommend uh, some sermons, there's a volume of Edwards sermons that Yale University Press, and I mentioned Yale twice now because they're interested in Edwards because Edwards was a Yale grad and because Yale has published the modern critical edition of the works of Jonathan Edwards that all the scholars use. But they've also published in easier, more accessible, shorter form, a couple of paperback volumes full of Edwards' greatest hits. And one of them is a sermons volume. It's all sermons. It's called The Sermons of Jonathan Edwards, A Reader. And you can get it very cheaply online in paperback. Um, so I would recommend that. There's, there's some wonderful sermons in there. 
Awesome. Thank so you. for those who are interested in following your work or connecting with you, is there a place that they can do that that's easy? Well, I don't have my own uh, website, but I have an email address. Be happy to be in communication with people. It's just dsweeney at samford.edu. Awesome. Well, we're very thankful you've taken the time to talk with us about Jonathan Edwards. Um, I know I found him one of the most formative figures in my own spiritual life, uh, as I am sure many others have as well. So huge thank you to you for talking to us about him. Um, and I guess for those who have been listening, we recommend all those works that Dr. Sweeney mentioned, uh, especially Dr. Sweeney's own book. Uh, I've read it myself and I, I bented from it. So thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for listening. All you listeners out there, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast that exists to my knowledge. Uh, and we'll talk to you guys soon. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.